Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest today is Jim Owen, Managing Director in the Investment Banking Group at Stout and Head of Engineering and Construction for the firm. Jim, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks. So subscribers of our magazine will see a written interview with you in our January issue. So I wanted to use this conversation to expand on some of what you covered there. Before we jump in, I think it'd be helpful to hear a little bit about your background and your experience as it relates to the construction and engineering sector. Sure. Well, I've been involved with the industry on the finance side for over 20 years. I spent 10 years at Bank of Montreal Harris Bank lending into the sector and raising capital for companies across the U.S. and globally. And then I spent 12 years at Houlihan Loki doing mergers and acquisitions, valuations, and capital raising, again, for U.S. and international firms in the engineering and construction space. So well over 20 years working with companies in the sector. Let's move on to areas of opportunity. So at a high level, what are some of the prevailing trends that are driving investment in construction and engineering right now? Sure, I would say based on where we see the outlook going, where we see interest from buyers and where we see projected spending, there's really three main areas. And a couple of these are newer. Some have been around for a while, but continue to be a strong segment. The first is aging infrastructure. This has been a theme for a while, but continues to be, and we believe will be a trend going well into the future. This is really driven by a lack of long-term spending on the part of the federal government, state government, and local governments in maintaining their infrastructure. And by that, we mean transportation, which is road, rail, and bridge. We also mean water infrastructure, and then also power. So all three of those we consider infrastructure, and there's just been a lack of maintenance spending in those areas. The opportunity for members of our industry is that there is such a diverse array of project types. Uh, There's various types of companies that can benefit from those, so engineering, construction, and maintenance firms. And the dollars that will be spent over the coming decades, really, uh, will continue to grow as we need to maintain the existing infrastructure that we have in the United States. So that's the first one, aging infrastructure. The second one, and this is a little bit newer, and it's even a newer term, is resiliency. And this is something I'd say has grown in uh, popularity and in an area of focus, I'd say over the last 10 years. And this is really minimizing the effects of climate change and our changing environment on infrastructure and in the built environment generally. So, for example, in the coastal areas of the United States, there's significant amount of planning and spending on, uh, underway in order to prevent the effects of rising seawater, as well as the effects of increased frequency and strength of storms. So, for example, in New York City, Build It Back was the program after Sandy. There's still spending going on from Build It Back. Mm-hmm. In the southeast, uh, some of the hurricanes that have impacted Florida, there's significant amount of recovery still going on and rebuild, but also now resiliency spending. And some of this can also be seen uh, longer term in the the work that's been done to prevent impact from earthquakes. Uh, There's laws on the books in California where you have to go back and earthquake-proof existing tall buildings. And now with the uh, growing amount of fires that we have out west, there's a lot of focus on how can we minimize the effects of fires um, in the Western United States. And then the last area I would say is green initiatives. 
Uh, that's another area where we see a lot of interest from our clients and from buyers in the space. And this I would break into renewables, so renewable power, which is wind and solar, and then energy efficiency. Uh, that's for buildings, uh, cities, and utilities as they look to utilize uh, newer and growing technology as well as new ways of building in order to make their buildings more efficient and lower their carbon footprint. Hmm. And then in terms of what types of companies are attractive to be able to capitalize on some of these trends, what does that look like? Sure. I still think we're at the early enough stages with a lot of these trends that it's the companies that are at sort of the front end of the project life cycle where we're seeing the most opportunity. So these would be companies that are architectural and engineering, but also provide consulting services. So they're in, they're involved at the very front end, working with their clients to conceptualize and then bring to reality these types of measures. The second is a growing area of construction management and program management, where our clients work with the owners of um, buildings or infrastructure to implement the spend and the, these programs. And then the last one that's interesting, too, is inspection and testing. So a lot of these uh, types of um, assets and infrastructure, there's more and more regulation around inspecting it regularly. This also applies in oil and gas. There's a lot of regulation around inspecting and maintaining oil and gas pipeline, but doing inspections and doing testing in order to prevent any sort of issues. So those three areas, architecture and engineering, uh, construction management, program management, inspection and testing are probably the three hottest areas that we see right now. Mm-hmm. And on the topic of inspection, what are some of the technologies that you're seeing inspection firms use? The most traditional type of inspection is what we call NDT or non-destructive testing. And that's a way to be able to inspect an asset without actually having to dismantle it or pull it out of place or dig it up in order to visually inspect it. So there's different types of technology, ground penetrating radar and LIDAR and some other types of um, technology that are used to inspect bridges and pipelines and uh, what they call high mass towers, so like wind towers or light poles. But traditionally, that was have had to be done manually. So you'd have to send someone up in a bucket truck or hang someone off the side of a bridge in order to inspect it. And now what we're seeing is utilization of drones or other types of robotics in order to make those um, inspections more efficient and safer. So that's probably um, the first area. And then I would say the second would be um, some of the newer technology, again, used in oil and gas pipelines. That's probably mm-hmm. the strongest area because, unfortunately, of spills and other issues, uh, there's newer types of ways that they can send um, mechanisms through the pipelines and do other types of controls and monitoring of uh, oil and gas, high-pressure pipe. Hmm. And how recent are some of these technologies? Are Have these just been around for a couple of years? Is this something that we've been seeing for a while? Well, drone usage was used in some other areas, such as mapping and land usage and surveying, uh, especially out west. They started using drones first just a few years ago. Um, but I would say the use of drones and robotics for bridges and other types of technology is very new. They're still actually, it's almost considered venture capital in some respects for some of these companies. And then I would say the, on the integrity side for oil and gas, there's been some older technology but is, that's been around a long time. But as far as using um, the latest, those that there are some newer uh, methodologies that are being used. 
And one thing that you mentioned in the Q&A that, that's running in the print magazine is that there's been a particular emphasis among private equity investors on the people within the business within construction. Um, that's something that we hear about across industries, but I wonder if there's a different significance in construction where people play a role that, that they don't in, in other sectors. I would say that, yes, the, the focus on the management team is paramount for a private equity buyer especially. And the reason is, these are what we call people businesses or elevator asset businesses, where you don't have machinery and equipment that's manufacturing a product. You might have machinery and equipment that's used to move dirt or build a structure, but you need people to run those. And it really starts at the top. I mean, the key for any well-run engineering construction company is the strength of the CEO, the CFO, the controller, and then kind of working each tier down, the vice presidents, and then say in a construction company down to the superintendents and project managers. Um, so that's paramount for an investor to really understand the strategy and the strengths and weaknesses of the senior management team, but also then the next levels down. I think the other way that, that we see that come through is you're starting to see more um, operating partner focused investment uh, projects where a private equity firm will partner with an ex-CEO or an ex-CFO to look to build out a platform in the industry or um, seeking out retired executives for board memberships or getting involved with M&A or other aspects of the business at a strategic level. Can you talk about what M&A activity in construction and engineering looked like in 2019 and what you're expecting for 2020? Sure. So the first half of 19, which is really where we have the best data so far, was very similar to the first half of 18. So that was a positive for us. I know back in 18, uh, it was a strong year. And so we were concerned with the momentum continue, and it did. I would say, though, that 18 and 19 have been a little bit below 15 through 17, which were sort of a peak um, for our industry. On the positive side as well, the second half of 19, based on our activity and the announced transactions in our industry, have has been very strong. Uh, there's been a handful of good-sized transactions announced recently, and at very strong valuations, which bodes well for everybody. As far as looking forward, um, we, and I think some of our peers would say that we expect the first half of 20 to be strong. I know as a firm, uh, we have a very strong pipeline and have multiple opportunities that we plan on bringing to market in the first quarter of uh, 2020. Second half maybe starts to get a little foggier uh, just because of the election and potential impacts from any sort of recession. We can talk about how that doesn't always have an immediate impact on our industry. But as far as M&A activity generally, uh, we expect the first half of 20 to be strong. Mm -hmm. I do want to go back to the recession topic. But before that, you, you touched on valuations. What are you seeing in the market? We keep hearing about high prices across industries. What does construction and engineering look like? I would say it's a tale of two cities when it comes to valuation. So from a size standpoint, and especially within our industry, because there is such a strong perception that the larger you are, you have more capacity to withstand any sort of downturn. So I would say for companies below $10 million of EBITDA, um, and, and especially below, say, $5 million, it's still, I would say, average valuation. So sort of historical averages not overly heated and certainly not lower, but sort of average valuations. I would say as you get larger though, 10 million and above and certainly 20 million and above of EBITDA, 
uh, and again, especially for companies that are less cyclical, less amount of project-based work, and less amount of um, exposure to commodity risk, I would say those are the valuations are very high right now. They're they're at least two turns higher than historical averages right now for well-run companies, non-cyclical end markets, which mainly means public spend end markets, and not as much direct project exposure. And just a clarifying question in terms of the pricing and M&A activity that you're seeing, is that uh, U.S.-based businesses or are you talking globally? I would say you for U.S.-based. We primarily are working with U.S.-based targets. Uh, and speaking with some of our European colleagues, there is good um, activity within Europe and the valuations, I'd say, are around the same. I think right now, though, there just happens to be such a focus on North America and the U.S. for a lot of reasons that those valuations are extremely high. In your view, what has been the prevailing force driving M&A activity in construction and engineering? Is it an effort to consolidate and achieve scale, or is it more to add services and diversify? Well, I would say for private equity buyers, I think what's happened is just over time, they've realized that there's some really good opportunities in our industry. Historically, multiples within construction have been below a lot of other sectors. And so as people have gotten comfortable with our industry, as you've seen executives move over to the private equity side or be operating partners, there's more and more private equity firms today than say even five years ago who are comfortable investing in our industry. Uh, so they're looking for platform and consolidation play opportunities, just a pure multiple play to get to a larger EBITDA level mm-hmm. and look for um, multiple accretion on the strategic side, I would say it is diversification. So it's adding either new end markets, new service offerings, or new geographies. When we talk to the very large publicly traded, both domestic and international strategics who are active in M&A, they usually have in mind the specific types of companies they're looking for, and they're defined by just that services and markets and uh, geographies. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier uh, new technology being introduced within the industry. Is private equity investment or, or M&A, is that playing a role in providing the financial resources for some of these firms to add additional technologies to their platforms? I think so. You know, the industry historically, especially when you stack it up against just about every other industry, has about the lowest percentage of revenue that's used towards R&D. Mm-hmm. So the industry just has, I think the next highest spend is in farming. So literally, the, the industry just has not spent a lot of money on R&D to really improve technology. I do think that some of the larger firms are spending um, or have more of a focus on it now. And so as they consolidate and get larger, they can set aside a small amount of money for technology. I would say that you do see some of the family offices or some of the other uh, financial sponsor owners taking an interest in some of the technology plays. And some of them even, like I said earlier, have a venture capital arm for some of the really early technology. And I want to ask you about some of the risks and challenges that are facing the industry, too. So starting with global trade, are the tensions there having an impact on U.S. construction in any meaningful way? You know, I thought about this one a lot. Not a lot. Mm-hmm. I would say the in a, just two areas where when we've talked to contractors primarily, where they just have to be cognizant of potential fluctuations in price. One would be steel. So that'd be for steel fabrication or steel pipe. 
but a lot of that can be fabricated in the U.S. And um, there is Buy America requirements for certain projects, so the steel is fabricated here. And then the second would be in the renewable space um, for wind turbines as well as solar panels. Uh, a lot of the solar panels are made in Asia, and there's, those have been the source of some of the, the trade um, conflicts. But what we've heard is people are able to mitigate that by locking in pricing. So I'd say it's had a, a small effect, not a major effect compared to maybe some other industries in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And what about the labor market? The low unemployment rate is obviously being felt across the economy in many different industries. How big of a risk does it present for construction and engineering businesses? I would say it's significant. It, it's a significant factor right now. Just about every CEO or CFO who we speak with brings up labor problems or labor pressures. Uh, there is a AGC study that was done earlier this year, and 80% of the respondents planned on adding more headcount. 78% reported difficulty hiring good quality people, and 68% felt that 19 was going to be worse or the same as 2018. So I think that'll carry over again in 2020. Um, and the the next interesting part of that study was how it was impacting their businesses. And about a third said that that the lack of good labor, both on the engineering side and the construction side, was having a direct impact on cost of projects. In other words, raising their costs and increasing the delays that they had built into their project schedules because of the lack of availability of good labor. Hmm. And is part of that a skills gap now that it sounds like construction and engineering businesses do involve more technology, different types of systems? Is, is that something that's at play here? I think it's that, but I think it's also demographics. Um, you know, as you get into the more specialty trades, uh, such as welding and some of the higher cost union and non-union trade areas, just it's an aging workforce. And so we just aren't having as many young people going into the trades. The industry is doing a lot to try to address that. And you know, it's a very attractive career. You can make significant dollars coming out of a trade school these days. I think it's a lot of it's a numbers game, uh, possibly some on the technology, uh, especially maybe when it comes to um, the internal sides so of the accounting and the um, drawing technology and different things like that. But um, generally, I think it's primarily a numbers game at this point, just a lack of new people entering the workforce mm -hmm. in, in the trades. You touched on this a bit earlier, but are there any subsectors within the industry that are struggling right now or that you expect to face new challenges within the next 12 months? Yeah, I would say that the ones that are having today the, the most uh, difficult time, and this was really a carryover of some aggressive bidding a few years ago, and we've been reading headlines about it, it's... It's firms that bid on what we call hard dollar, lump sum, low bid contracts. So they're bidding for work where it's a competitive bid environment. And a lot of times that is public work. Uh, and a lot of times these are larger projects. They can be very large. And when it's lump sum, that means it's a fixed price contract. So the contractor absorbs any cost overages. And there was a bidding environment just a few years ago that was very competitive and a lot of uh, companies just bid too low. Either they bid too low or they had execution issues on their projects. And a lot of these were for large infrastructure projects. 
Uh, unfortunately, the, the upshot of that has been, again, this is publicly announced, several companies have said that they will no, no longer bid on those types of projects. So what a lot of people are wondering about in our industry is what firms are going to be around to bid on what we call mega projects. So those are projects over a billion dollars in value. Those are typically large highway projects, bridges, airports, and rail, uh, and some power and oil and gas. Um, hopefully what in the long run, what, what comes out of that could be a positive is that the risk sharing will become fairer again, between owners and contractors and not have so much of that cost risk sit on the side of the contractor, but be more properly shared between the owner and the contractor, which hopefully then will bring more folks back into wanting to bid on those types of projects. And if we were to get and major infrastructure bill, like a lot of folks thought as the Trump administration came into office. I mean, does that change those dynamics or are you then facing a shortage of who's going to do this work? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's been some huge amounts of contracts. I mean, in New York alone, there's several billion being spent on LaGuardia. There's going to be another seven or eight billion spent on JFK and Newark. Chicago is going to spend several billion on O'Hare. I think what's going to happen is you'll continue to see partnering of firms, maybe some more mid-sized firms will partner up to work on those projects. And again, I think they're just going to have better bid discipline as far as the margins uh, that they bid at, the contingencies that they build in, and then how the the risk gets shared if there's overages due to things that sometimes are unforeseen at the front end. It seems like there's less panic right now about an imminent recession than when I first put together the questions that, that you answered in your Q&A for the magazine. But I think this final question is is still worth asking. What are some recommendations that you have for how businesses can prepare for what seems to be maybe not imminent, but an eventual economic slowdown? Like I said at the beginning, I've been covering the sector for a long time. And it's interesting when you look at how some of the old line more established firms behave. And these are companies that have been around for 50, 60, 70 years. So they've survived multiple cycles. And these are companies like Kiewit or Bechtel or Clark, um, which are huge multi-billion dollar companies, but they do well regardless of the economy. And I would say some of the attributes that those firms have, which can carry over to other folks in the industry, is first of all, staying in their lane. In other words, bid the types of projects you know, with clients who you know, in geographies that you know. Uh, over the years where we've seen companies get into trouble is when they go outside of those parameters and they just end up taking on too much risk for the return. The second thing is keeping an eye on leverage. Uh, it is kind of interesting actually right now, some of the publicly traded companies in our industry are over levered compared to historical averages. And a lot of people are kind of keeping an eye on that to see how that's going to impact their ability to grow or make acquisitions down the road. So I think it's uh, keeping an eye on leverage. In other words, the amount of debt that you have. I think it's bid discipline. You know, if there's any sort of slowdown, sometimes what happens is companies bid in order to keep their workers busy. So they're willing to sacrifice margin in order to keep revenue going. And that's a mistake. So I think what they need to do is to try to get more of their costs to be variable costs than fixed. So that means they can their revenue can decline, but they can still keep their margins the same uh, by keeping their bid discipline. In other words, not chasing the market down if, if margins start to decline. And then finally is uh, keeping an eye on cost. 
So fixed costs, uh, you know, your overhead can grow during good times as you open offices or add people or add technology or do other things. I think it's the ones that can see a slowdown coming and can keep an eye on those costs, their fixed costs, um, so that they can survive if they have to shrink a little bit um, are the ones that will be successful. And then I think if you do those things properly, you know, if, if anything that we've heard about any sort of pending recession generally is that it won't it won't be as deep or as long as what we've been hearing. So I really think that, you know, for companies that are in good shape going into a recession or a slowdown, they could be opportunistic, whether it's with acquisitions, with maybe with hiring some senior people to fill some holes. So I think, you know, if you're in strong financial shape and have, you know, the basics of a strong management team, you could actually be opportunistic while others kind of hunker down and wait for things to get better. An optimistic note to end on. Right. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Jim. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.